Right now, though, it's my pleasure to introduce someone who's become a really good friend uh, of mine in the last two years, um, Don Golden. And Don Golden is the Senior Vice President of Church Engagement at World Relief, which is headquartered there in Baltimore. Don is the point of contact, in some sense, our boss as the World Relief Next Project. Uh, and Don's an interesting guy. He got his master's from University of Wales uh, and spent 10 years with his family when they were really young over in Europe. And through the years at World Relief, he's traveled to over 60 countries um, trying to live out his passion to serve the most vulnerable in this world through local churches and through, through Christians uh, in different countries around this world. Uh, he, he spent three years as lead pastor of Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids. And at the end of that time, he co-authored a book called Jesus Wants to Save Christians with Rob Bell. Um, Don is a fascinating guy, and you'll, I think you'll come to understand real quickly, he speaks with the credibility on the issue of, of global issues, poverty, um, of, of third world context, missions, relief development, um, like few people do. And so would you welcome with me Don Golden. Awesome. Great, great to be here with you all. Um, good to be at Antioch Church. And I want to just begin by saying thank you to uh, the community of faith here for giving away your best. You know, Antioch does have a history of giving away its best. There is an Antioch in the, in the Bible uh, where Paul and Barnabas came from. And uh, that church prayed and gave their best away. And uh, the Apostle Paul launched his ministry and um, the kingdom spread. And we want to thank you at World Relief for giving so much of your talent. And clearly, you're a talented community. Thank you for giving us uh, for the time that Ken has spent with us, uh, helping us. And I'm going to talk uh, in the context of my discussion this morning about how significant World Relief's connection with Antioch Church is and the World Relief Next Project. And we'll talk about that. But um, Ken and Ann and Beth and Matt and uh, so many others who have given to the work of the gospel, the work of the gospel to the poor and the vulnerable uh, through this project. And so we're grateful. And I just wanted to say thank you for uh, giving us your best. Thank you. Um, we're going to, uh, this morning, I thought it would be a good idea to study the Bible. Is that a... Are we safe there? Let's, let's, so we're going to study the Bible. And uh, I, want, I want to look at a particular verse uh, and use it sort of as a, as a framework for going through the Bible and looking at one, at, at one theme. And that's Psalm 88.1. So let's just read this verse. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night... I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. I'd like to suggest that one of the more important things that we can engage in as believers, as followers of Christ, is the act of crying. But it's actually a really important function in the life of the believer. And so we're going to look at a handful of types of crying in Scripture through the whole sweep and expanse of Scripture. And we're going to look at a few uh, places and issues where 
There are people crying in our world. We're going to look at this idea of crying in the scripture, and we're going to see if we can't get a little bit of clarity about how this uh, theology or even spiritual practice of crying can, can help us. But before we do that, I want to begin by uh, looking at a few famous cries that you might know about. This is the class participation part, so I want to kind of hear your voice. I'm going to show you a slide, and I'm going to see if you know uh, where this is from in, in our history. So let's uh, take a look at the first one. Anybody know where that's from? Kent State. That's right. That's in Ohio. I'm actually from Ohio. I grew up with that image. Uh, I was born right around that same time, and that was a I mean, you just look at that anguish on that woman's face. Uh, the next one, I'm not going to leave this up here too long because I find it just too brutal, to be honest. Anybody know? Vietnam. That's right. Next one. Anybody remember this? Yeah, the, the, the crying Indian. It was about pollution. I remember as a boy just being totally moved when I saw this picture. Any of you? Any of you remember this? Yeah. Okay, how about the next one? Anybody know who that is? Jimmy Swagger. Yeah, man. Wow. Okay, how about the next one? I think this was a relative of his. Yeah, we all know Tammy. Yes, yes. Uh, how about the next one? Yeah? Where is that? Yeah, that's New Orleans. That's Katrina. That's right. And uh, the next one, a little fresh in our... Our mind, probably. Anybody have an idea? Ken and Matt are headed there a week from today. That's Haiti. Lots of crying. And, of course, the next one, very important. Uh, can anybody name this episode? Who, who can do this? My whole family. Uh oh I saw that hand. Yeah. Yes, Jim, Jim. Yes, awesome. Yeah, so those are some... Those are some uh, famous cries in history that says something about the golden household and what we indulge in. And my, all my, uh, my family, my three daughters, can all enact the Jim is leaving scene. Um, let's, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this idea of a, uh, a theology of, of crying, a spiritual practice of crying. But uh, before we do, let's pray together. Father, we are... Uh, at World Relief, genuinely uh, amazed and blessed by our friendship with this community of faith, with these followers of Jesus. And even worshiping here this morning, uh, coming before you with them, I can see the energy, the talent, the blessing. And yet, Father, I know that when you bless, it is to be a blessing. And so this morning, we're going to look at the disposition of our hearts. And God, it is my prayer that my heart and the experience and strength and hope and failure and all of my life's journey would connect with these friends and that together we might hear your voice and follow you just a little bit more clearly. So come, Spirit, and be with us these few minutes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have this idea that... Uh, uh, of crying sort of centrally right here in the middle of the Bible in Psalm 88.1. A 
Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. And this sort of summarizes, I think, kind of at the existential level, why it is that we follow Jesus. Why is it important? Why why does it actually matter? Why it matters that we love God and that we follow God and that we join together in communities of faith like this is because we cry and God saves. This is actually the nature, the fabric of the universe we live in. This is an extraordinary and profound fact. Nobody denies that we cry. But how many of us doubt at any given moment, does God really save? Boy, I know in my 43 years, when I've encountered my own crying, have I always firmly believed that God saves, that he hears? Well, what we want to look at this this morning is we want to look kind of like lift the hood on this idea that we cry and God saves. And I want to encourage you. I want to give you a few different ways and types of crying that you can do. And I actually believe that if you'll engage in these types of crying now until the kingdom come, you will grow. You will overcome the struggles in your life. You will fulfill what God has put you on the planet to do. That is my uh, claim because I believe we can justify it in scripture. And so let's do that in a critical place to start is Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. Let me ask, um, I know we're going to have a Q&A time later, and see, normally if I come to town and I do a sermon, I get to leave. But today I have to take some Q&A, so I want to know who we're dealing with here. How, how many theologians do we have in the house today? Boy, I'm uh, looking, I don't see a hand. That makes the, makes the Q&A time good today. <laughs> awesome. Actually, though, maybe if we gave it a bit of a definition. Theology, God, logos word, theology is a word about God. Every human being, certainly every Christ follower, has a word about God, knows a word about God, and wants to speak a word about God. So let me ask you, how many theologians do we have in the house? Yes. We're all theologians. So... We're going to take a look at this, this idea of a theology of crying, but I think more importantly, probably a spiritual practice of crying. And in Exodus 3.9, we uncover a critical verse. It says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go... I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Now, here's the theology piece. Who wrote Exodus? I think I heard Moses. Moses. Now, Moses enters the story in Exodus, but who wrote Genesis? Moses also wrote Genesis. In some ways, it's actually true that Exodus is the beginning of the story because Moses wrote Genesis, but Moses doesn't appear until the book of Exodus. And what catalyzes, what begins the whole story of redemptive history is the cry of God's people in Israel. Uh, If you look into the the commentaries, there's this great 
uh, Torah commentary written by Jews coming out of the history of uh, the Jewish faith with this incredible depth of love for the Torah. And so I looked up what this word cry here in Exodus 3.9, what do they say about it? And it says cry here in, is uh, the Hebrew word sa'ak. And the JPS Torah commentary calls sa'ak one of the most powerful words in the Hebrew language. It's pervaded by moral outrage and soul-stirring passion. It denotes the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the helpless victim. One of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann, he goes on to call the Exodus cry the primal scream that begins, that permits the beginning of history. The primal scream that permits the beginning of history. The Bible begins with the cry. God hears his people suffering. He hears uh, the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them and he brings them out and he brings them to himself. And interestingly, Genesis is sort of like the backstory for these freed slaves. If you grew up in your whole life and all you did was make bricks for Pharaoh and you thought you were the property of a living God on earth, and suddenly out of the blue, a savior, a Moses comes and sets you free and says that the great I am has sent me to you to redeem you and brings you to the mountain. It's at that mountain that you might need to hear What's the backstory here? I thought I was the property of Pharaoh. I thought I had no moral, no, no personal value. And that's where the book of Genesis comes in. You were made in God's image. It's sort of like, almost like group therapy for disempowered slaves, the book of Genesis. It's to create in them a sense of awareness that God made them for a purpose. And this is who this God is. But the story begins here with this cry. Brueggemann goes on to talk about this word, sa'ak, the cry. And he says, on the one hand, it's the cry of misery and wretchedness with some self-pity. But it also began in the history of, of uh, Israel to function as the official filing of a legal complaint. The mournful one is also the plaintiff. It's sort of crying out in pain, but it's also crying out for justice. Turn with me, if you would, just a few chapters back to Genesis chapter 4. You have the story of the, uh, the beginning of sin. Sin enters the equation, and what's the first story that's told after sin enters the equation? It's the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother Abel, and he tries to keep it a secret, but God says to Cain, where is your brother? And in... Um, Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, it says, I hear your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground. And that word cry is the same word, sa'ak. Sa'ak, I hear your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground. Right at the very beginning of history, right at the beginning of time, injustice would lead to acts of violence that would create suffering in humanity. And God hears this. God cares about this. When you suffer, God cares. When people cry out, God cares. And the Lord is making it very clear that history begins, redemptive history, God's acts in time and among people are related to his passionate concern for people who suffer. And this idea of the ground crying out, 
and this is where I want to talk about Congo. Congo is uh, not only a place that you've probably heard a lot about because of World Relief Next. It's not just a place that we happen to land on at World Relief Next and, and in our relationship. It's because there is literally so much suffering. You know, beginning way back when the car was discovered or was, was invented and mass produced, rubber was discovered in Congo. So while we're learning how to... Uh, with Henry Ford's help, mass produced so that everybody has their own car, poor Congolese in another part of the world who are literally owned by King Leopold, they spent generations, not unlike Israel in Egypt, just going out into the woods, cutting down rubber trees, and the Belgians perfected a kind of terror in the the labor force to motivate and to threaten people to do the work for them. They actually started this this history of what I saw later in Sierra Leone, the hacking off of limbs. It was the Belgians that began that activity to push Congolese to produce these, uh, to to harvest these rubber trees and to provide rubber for the West as we grew. Uh, Independence in 1961. You know, this is a nation that that, uh, elected its first leader in 1961, a very charismatic Patrice Lumumba. And he was quite an amazing leader. He could rally people behind them. But you know, there's, a, there's something called the Church Report. The Church Report is a, a senator in the U.S. Congress who did an analysis of the American role in assassinating Patrice Lumumba. And uh, the Belgians, the U.S., and the U.N. conspired together to have Patrice Lumumba assassinated because he was leaning towards the left and towards the Communist Party, and this was at the height of the Cold War. So here is a country that had had experienced so much pain, they finally come to the place where they have their own head of state, and this person is killed, and then the cruel dictatorship of Mobutu for many years. Then the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. When When those who committed the genocide in Rwanda... When they pushed out the perpetrators, where did they push them? They pushed them into the Congo, where they exist to this day. That led to a war in 1998. And there's this last line. And it's always a a line that reminds me. It's an idea that reminds me of Genesis chapter 4. Does God hear the blood-soaked land? Over 5 million people have died in the Congo. And this is where our partnership with World Relief Next comes in, why it's so important. Let me tell you, development agencies are really good at doing the economics, the social development, the, the, uh, the medical work. But, you know, I find that we're not very good storytellers. I mean, we don't, we don't often know how to really grab people with a sense of relevance. In fact, I've, I've often used this, um, this analogy. It's kind of like a car commercial when the, you know, the engineers and they, they, they come together and the designers and they build these amazing uh, vehicles. And then they give these vehicles to car dealers. And what do car dealers do? They do these commercials. Come to Bill's Chevrolet and buy the... And it's just ridiculous. It makes this amazing product look like so dorky and so unattractive that I don't know why we still go to these car dealers and buy these vehicles when they, are, they have these horrible commercials. On the other hand, 
if you see the actual commercials that, that come out, say the Cadillac one, you know, what makes the difference with your car when you turn it on? Does it return the favor? You know, it's like totally cool. Yeah, I want a car that does that. You know, World Relief has right now 60,000 volunteers today all over the world engaged in some of the most entrenched problems on the face of the earth. Extreme poverty, uh, AIDS. We start microfinance banks. We have, we're the second largest microfinance institution, Christian institution. Um, we do all this other work overcoming some of the fundamental challenges, but we can't tell the story. We can't get people to see the relevance. Have you ever gone to the missionary banquet at church, you know, and the guy comes out with the shorts on and the hat and he's, you know, flipping through the, oh, and it's just like, you know, you know you ought to care, you know you ought to be excited about it, but you just hear that story and it's like, wow, is that what mission's about? And World Relief Next has been a way for us to engage with the church in the arena of the church's amazing strength in storytelling, in communication, in design, while at the same time involving these relationships in the work that we do so that people can see, so that World Relief Next, so next Sunday, Ken and Matt will get on a plane and we'll go down to Haiti and we'll see the work that we're doing and we'll help us conceive of the ways to tell that story better. It's an amazing, amazing partnership. So the first thing that the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practice of crying does is is it catalyzes. It's about how to move God. It's about how to get God to kick things in in gear. And I I know that for for me, the the need to cry out and to be open about what I'm suffering, that's what I need to do. I need to cry out to God, let him hear what's in my heart, and let him kick redemptive history into gear for me. So the first is crying is a catalyst. Secondly, let's go on. Crying is a call. Exodus 22, verse 23. And this is just a a passing reference to, I will hear the widow and the orphan when they cry. This word cry, again, is sa'ak. So it's like this. God has redeemed Israel and brought them to himself. But now he has given them a mission to go respond to the cry of others. And it's, it's almost like a parent saying, you know, if you don't do this, it's not going to go well with you. I will hear the widow and the orphan when they cry. The cry of the oppressed is the call of God's people. You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of questions in church about, as, as I was a lead pastor at Mars Hill, about um, what should we do? What, 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 uh, what are the decisions that a church takes as they set out on uh, their journey. And there are lots of options. I mean, God may be telling the church to build a multi-million dollar building. And actually, the fact is, I believe that God might be telling you to do that. The Lord might be telling you about music, about theater, about drama. There's lots of things that God might be telling you about. But what he is always telling you about, what you can always be clear about, is that God is calling you to respond to the cry of the oppressed. There is never a doubt about that. If you got any doubt, you don't know which way to go, respond to the cry. Listen to who's crying around you and respond to it. This is what God is like. God is the God of those who cry 
and he calls us to be his hands and feet. Now, our response to that cry is actually as much for us as it is for them. It's as much for us to be sensitive to people who, like the Congolese, are crying out so that we can be reminded of what it's like, we, so we can be reminded of when we ourselves cried out to God. Um, one of my favorite theologians is uh, Heschel. He's a, a, a Jewish theologian and rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he had this to say. Only truths that have proven beneficial to the weak should be held as principle by those who live at ease. Let me give you that again. Only truths that have proven beneficial to the weak should be held as principle by those who live at ease. We have to get involved with people who suffer. We have to get involved with people who are crying out. Because when we see God acting for them, with them, overcoming their fundamental struggles, we will tap in to the very heart of God, a God who hears the cry, a God who's always inclined towards the weak. And as we engage with the weak, we're reminded of our own need, our own dependence on this God. And we will tap into those principles that have proven helpful to the weak, and they can become principles that guide us even when we live at ease. So the second uh, component of the spiritual practice of crying and weeping, the first is it's a catalyst. It gets God moving. Second, it's a call. It gets us moving. And then the third, it's a corrective. Psalm 137 Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captives asked us for songs our tormentors demanded songs of joy. So in the history of Israel, you have God setting captives free because they cried out to him, God, we are being punished. God, we are, being, we are suffering. And they cry out to them. God calls them. God liberates them. He brings them to himself, and he gives them a call to hear the widow and the orphan. He calls them to be a priestly nation that mediates his purposes to the world, that basically becomes the hand and feet of God to respond to others who cry. That's actually what Israel was all about, responding to that cry. But what happened? Israel took up the land. They went into their own territory. They became a great empire. They found out. I mean, they, they came to possess all that they needed. I don't know about you, but isn't it, isn't it easy at times when you live at ease, when you have what you need? It's easy to forget, to become deaf to those who suffer. And that's very much what Israel did. And that is where the prophets kick in. That's what they're all about. The prophets are a group of sort of wild-haired, crazy people who just believed so passionately that God was the God of the oppressed, that God was forming a people who would respond to those who cried out, that they abandoned everything. They abandoned any kind of normal way of life, and they just began to speak out. There's, there's sort of two voices of the prophet. One is, it's coming. It's coming. This blessing that you have, that you are no longer using for the weak, the day is coming when you're going to lose it. That's one half of the prophets. And then the other half is when they've lost it. They're right there saying, it's because you became indifferent. It's because you forgot the weak. 
you failed to hear the cry. So the, uh, the, uh, the prophets kick in. Isaiah says, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but, he, but hears only cries of distress. And actually the, the, uh, Isaiah is being a poet here. He's using a word play. He says, he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, and that word is sedaka. But, here only, but he heard only cries, sa'aka. He wanted righteousness, sedaka. But he heard only cries, sa'aka, of distress. So that's why you lost everything. Now, what did they lose? Israel, you know, we say, uh, don't put God in a box. These were people who had God in a box. Literally, they carried God around in an ark everywhere they went. God was with them uniquely, unlike any other nation. And though they had been slaves, he raised them up to this amazing height and he gave them his presence. But he said, basically the, the, the ancient promise of Abraham, I will bless you, why? So that you can be a blessing. I heard your cry so that you can hear the cry of others. Because the fundamental way the universe works is we cry, God hears. But they forgot and they lost their position. The Babylonians fell upon them and they went into exile. And Amos says, it's because you trampled the needy and you did away with the poor of the land. Hosea says, uh, speaking for God, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. I don't know about you, but I've seen that in my own life. That when God has cared for me, when he has fed me, when he's taken care of me, when he's given me the things that I need and want, those things that I need and want become responsibilities that are a bit of a pain, a bit of a burden, and I want to know how I can protect them, and I find that I'm wrapped up in a whole place of self-preservation. That's what happened to Israel. And so it says, by the rivers of Babylon, they wept. They hung their harps on the poplar trees and they wept because now they're in exile. Now they have lost everything. But that little word there, they wept. Ah, this is the cry of disillusionment. And this is particularly one that I want you to think about today because when we have, it is so easy to become indifferent and to try to preserve what we have and it loses its vitality, it loses its vigor. So the, the, the weeping in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, the Israelites who had once been slaved and slaves and then became an empire, now are slaves again to the Babylonians. And this is disillusionment, this is despair. I think if there's anything worse than the cry of suffering when someone who is truly neglected and oppressed, when they cry out, there's only one thing worse, I think, and it's the, it's the cry of despair. When you're crying without that sense of hope, when you're crying without that sense of expectation, sometimes when you're crying because you know you're getting what you deserve. This is a bitter type of prayer, a, a bitter type of crying and weeping. But I want to encourage you, if you're in that place, if that characterizes you, if there's something in your life that you believe God called you to, but you've kind of gone your own way, you've kind of done your own thing, and now you don't know how to get back, that, that, that uh, bridge has been burned, I encourage you to cry this way, to exercise the spiritual discipline of the corrective cry. 
that cry that says, God, I know I heard you once, I ignored you, and now I have the consequences. Cry out anyway. Sometimes people in that place, they just don't want to because it's so painful and bitter. Maybe God will not hear me. But let me, let me encourage you about how loving and how gracious God is, how amazing God is, because it's in Babylon. It's in this place of exile and punishment for sin that God births in the people of Israel a new vision. And that's the vision of the Messiah. He's basically at that lowest point when they thought all was lost, that's when he gives the, prophet, the prophets the vision of a coming Messiah. Basically, the law that I gave you on the outside, there is coming a Messiah, and he will write this law in your hearts. You came to me and you took the, the symbol of covenant in your body and circumcision, but when this Messiah comes, you will be the covenant people. You will be in a living, loving relationship with me and with one another. And it's in that place of despair, at the place when it's all been received and then all been lost, that's when God gives his richest blessing to the people of Israel and he promises the Messiah, and he cultivates a whole culture of people waiting and hoping and looking for that day when Jesus comes. And we are the people of Jesus. We are the recipients, uh, the beneficiaries of this corrective cry, this cry from disillusionment. Uh, and this is a bit of a shameless plug, you know. Oh, I wrote this book, so I want you to... But, I'm a, kind of a one-trick pony. I only kind of know one story, and so I put it all in this book. And uh, Rob and I wrote this story, but we, we dealt with this issue because the pastoral work of our church was really to deal with a lot of disillusioned people. And uh, so let me just uh, read a, a passage from, from this, uh, that relates to this topic. Americans control nearly 20% of the world's wealth. There are around 6 billion people in the world, and there are roughly 300 million people in the U.S. That makes America less than 5% of the world's population, and this 5% owns a fifth of the world's wealth. One billion people in the world do not have access to clean water, while the average American uses 400 to 600 liters of water a day. More than half of the world live on less than $2 a day, while the average American teenager spends nearly $150 a day. A week. One third of American families own three cars. One in seven children worldwide has to go to work every day just to survive. Four out of, four, four out of five American adults are high school graduates. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half the world does on all goods. Now, when many people get a glimpse of how the world really is, whether it's through travel or study or reading statistics like these, it can quickly lead to guilt. We have so much while others have so little. Guilt is not helpful. Let me just encourage you. This is not about guilt. Honesty is helpful. Awareness is helpful. Knowledge is helpful. Guilt is not helpful. Human history has never seen the kind of wealth and abundance that we call normal. America is the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. We have more resources than any group of people anywhere at any time has ever had, ever. God bless America? God has. And we should be very, very grateful. And that accumulation, but that accumulation has consequences. Blessings and abundance can turn into burdens and curses. 
The number of Americans taking antidepressants has tripled in the past decade. If all this was supposed to make us happy, why are so many of us so sad? This corrective prayer, this prayer of, uh, this cry of disillusionment is one that's particularly needed to awaken the Spirit's vitality in our hearts. What else will God give us if he hears this prayer? Let's move on. The Bible begins with a cry, and that cry catalyzes redemptive history. And then God calls his people to respond to that cry, and then he uses crying as a corrective to keep them on the path. But ultimately, Revelation 21.4, the whole Bible begins with crying, it ends with crying. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There is a goal and a direction to human history. This is why we keep going. This is how we face death and loss in our families, with, among our spouses, in our communities. There is a direction. This is really the cry of hope. This is really the, the cry of longing about history and where it's all going and what it's all about. You know, sometimes when you do live in, amongst relative blessing, as, as we do even in a downturn economy, sometimes our hope is a daily thing. We see our hope, but it's when those moments come, either when we've encountered our own suffering or when we've sort of borrowed the cry of somebody else that we remember that this is a, there's an arc to history that is going somewhere. We cry and God saves. There is a sure and certain path forward for the people of God, for human history, and God is going to wipe away every tear. And the fact is that he wants to use you to do it. It's why you were made. You were created, and now you were saved, and now you were formed into God's people, the church, to be God's response to the cry. You know, some people say when they're suffering, where was God? And I think the answer is, I don't know, where's your local church? We are the body of Christ and we exist to respond to that cry. And God does beautiful things as we respond. What I think he does is he brings a little bit of that sure and certain future. He brings a little bit of that heaven to earth. You know, Jesus prayed that thy kingdom come, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So when we respond to the cry, when we come together, when we go out in mission and when we act together, we're pulling a little bit of that heaven into the hell that we experience on earth. Let me tell you about another place. It's, uh, it's Cambodia. And Cambodia is a, a place that sort of grips my heart because of the degree to which it had suffered. Uh, we could go back and talk about the carpet bombing, how uh, America engaged in trying to root out the Vietnamese by, uh, uh, through this sort of mass carpet bombing of east, southeastern Cambodia and how even today people are stepping on uh, mines and bombs that were unexploded from that time. We could talk about the rise of the Khmer Rouge, this forced collectivization. On one day in uh, the beginning of the Khmer Rouge's reign, all intellectuals were taken out of their uh, places of service and they were either taken to a place called Tool Sling and killed or they were marched out to uh, collective farms where they had to serve. This was such a radical form of communism that even, not only religion, even the family was outlawed. It's a, 
place that has gripped me so much in my travels because it's, it's a place where the social fabric was completely decimated and undermined. What happened when the Khmer Rouge came is that all the missionaries had to flee. But after they were toppled and some measure of order was restored after the war, the missionaries came back, but they saw absolutely no or very little uh, progress. People were not responding to the gospel. World Relief went in and we, and we said, you know, we're not sure what's going on here, but we, one thing we're sure about, people are crying out for some basic needs to be met. So we started something called credit. It was a way of a microfinance program that started giving little loans to people. And those little loans uh, were, were done through a, a community networking process that people would come together. And they had to learn to trust one another. So there was some social restoration going on around finances. We weren't even really talking about the gospel. We were just talking about, hey, you need money, you need resources, and we would, we'll help you. Another missionary came along and said, hey, you know, I see what you're doing here, and I find that you're building more confidence in the Khmer than any of uh, the work that the missionaries are doing. And so she started um, telling the gospel story and doing kids' clubs. And kids started coming to Christ, and then parents started watching their kids come to Christ. And after a while, they started forming these little cell churches. And since that time, we have planted over 900 cell churches because we first led with what is your fundamental challenge? What are you really struggling with? What are you crying about? And World Relief responded first with credit and then with this um, program called Hope. And it has been an amazing story about what the culmination of the cry ought to be. What is the purpose of our cry? It's that God would wipe away every tear and we see that little bit of heaven coming into the reality, into the experience of... uh, Cambodia, and really exciting uh, to see that. Uh, as we wrap up here, I want you to think about four questions. And I'm going to walk you through these questions. I have a couple more slides to show you. But the first one is um, back to this idea of crying as a catalyst. And I, I have this question for you. And maybe it's something for you to think about in your, in your prayer time later this week or perhaps in a small group. But the first question for your reflection is, what is the cry of your heart? What is the cry of your heart? What is that area of struggle, of difficulty? Is it an addiction? Is it a marital problem? Is it a a challenge with one of your kids? Is it a, a general vague sense of, I'm not sure what this is all about for me? If you're in that place, I encourage you to cry out. Let your voice ring out. Find others who will join you in that cry. Because it is the cry that catalyzes history. It kicks things in gear. God hears that cry and he acts. This, uh, the catalytic cry is one that is uh, about getting God started, getting God moving in our lives. And there's just something, it's almost like God is that parent that cannot stand to hear his baby crying. He's just got to go do something about it. What is the cry of your heart? Voice it. Get it out there. Secondly, it's the question, uh, whose cry do you hear? Whose cry are you responding to? God has you on this planet, both as an individual and as a church, to respond to the cry of the oppressed. We know this. And when we forget, when we are not responding, something grows a little bit cold. 
There is hope, there is passion, there is vitality for you. So I want to just, if you don't have something, if you somehow have lived in this community without getting engaged in Congo or one of the other, I want to talk to you about Sudan very quickly. Uh, Sudan is another one of those places on the planet that has experienced profound suffering. There's no place like it. You can go to Africa and then you go to Sudan. There's nothing like Sudan. It's kind of like still in a post-fire, pre-wheel, pre-agriculture mode of of operating. There's one city called Juba in the south where that's modernized, but everything else in that whole region is just so undeveloped. And it has known perpetual war since its uh, independence in 1956. There has been this ongoing brutal war between the north and the south and between the north and Darfur. And so many people have just been raised and cultivated their whole lives have grown up in perpetual conflict. Uh, We all know uh, some of the stories about Darfur, but they just had their first free and fair election just last month. It's actually quite an amazing thing, but they are genuinely desperate that you would pray for them. And so what I would ask you to do is to go on to uh, worldrelief.org slash Sudan, uh, tap into that. If you spent Two hours. I mean, I know that's a serious investment, but if you spent two hours just looking at that website, reading some of the material, informing yourself about that part of the world, and then joining in hearing the cry of the church in the Sudan, you would be joining God in hearing the cry of the oppressed. And maybe the Lord would lead you to get somebody else to gather with you and to pray for Sudan. And maybe we could even... um, build up a little bit of head of steam, a little momentum to get the church here praying for the church there. They have this unique moment where they've had an election. Next year, they will um, go into a referendum and they'll be able to say, we want to be an independent nation. But at any stage, that could uh, descend into war, into chaos, into the crying of many, many, many more innocent lives. So whose cry do you hear? If you're not engaged, if you've got more room, then take on the crying of somebody else and um, help us in Sudan. Thirdly, the question about correction. Where have we gone astray? I just encourage you this week as you pray, as you think, as you uh, come before the Lord. Lord, if I exist to respond to the cry of the oppressed, where have I gone astray? Where have I begun to miss you? And um, on this one, I think, let me see the slide on immigration. I have, a, I have a book here. You know, right now, a very hot topic is this issue of immigration. And it has become a, uh, a very sore and sensitive topic. And it's so polarized. And people who make their living on news entertainment are the ones that are feeding us our information about immigration. But we have uh, two of our staff members have compiled a series of amazing facts, both biblically, both economically, both about the legal issues related to immigration. And I commend this book to you. I have copies out there for you to pick up. They're 10 bucks each. This issue is, you know, hearing the cry of the widow, the orphan, and later the Bible always adds this other, this third to it, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Um, I think this is an area where we as a nation, a nation of immigrants, a nation who displaced Native Americans, we ought to be sensitive. We ought to tap into the heart of God and say, God, you are the God who hears the cry of the widow, the orphan, and the alien, and we should, be bring, we should season this discussion with maturity, with wisdom, with grace, and with God's love, not just a self 
protective posture. And it is a complicated issue, and that's why I commend this book to you. Please grab this book. Uh, go to our website, um, which is welcomingthestranger.com. Lots of information on there. You can become one who hears the cry of the oppressed and um, I think helps this nation correct its posture to the 12 million here who live without the protection of the law. And then culmination. What is your hope? The last re reflection here. What is your hope? Is uh, your weeping uh, a cry of despair or is it a, a cry of God, please respond to me. I know that you will wipe away every tear. I know what the end of the game is. The Bible is a story that begins with people crying and God responding, and it's a story that ends with God wiping away every tear. He is passionate about ending our misery, about ending human suffering, about bringing community, about establishing the kingdom. That is the sure and certain future. Whatever you're facing in your life, whatever has got you down, I encourage you to refresh yourself in this knowledge that God will wipe away every tear. And then just lastly, as I wrap up here with Romans 8.15, this amazing verse, this amazing hope is really a cry of celebration. It's about grace and joy. It says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. And if, and if you're a Jew hearing that, you know you were once a slave in Egypt, then you became a slave in Babylon, but the spirit that God has given you, you are no longer a slave. You do not live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, we cry, Abba, Father. Um, Heschel says, we praise when we can so we can pray when we can't. When we have the opportunity, when there's anything to be grateful for, praise him so that when you are suffering, you can pray. You can cry out to him. And another statement, gratitude is the natural state of grace. I encourage you today to shout out a cry of Abba Father. Thank you, God, for what you have done in me. Now raise me up to be an agent of your purpose in the world. Again, we uh, love you at World Relief. We're so thrilled to be in uh, partnership with you. I commend this uh, redemptive crying to you. If you practice that whole range of crying, your life will continue to grow and to blossom and you will be used by God. Let me commit us to prayer before I, before I leave. Lord God, I commit the family of God at Antioch Church into your care. I thank you for them. I thank you uh, for the amazing abundance of talent that you've placed here. I thank you for the vision of the leaders that seek to make this blessing a blessing for those without. God, respond to your people as they reflect this week on these questions. May they engage in the kind of crying that will move you, that will move them, that will correct them, and that will give them hope, and ultimately that they can celebrate their Abba Father. Commit this day into your care in Jesus' name. Amen.